Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. And welcome back after a holiday weekend. Thanks to those of you who have increased our number of ratings on iTunes lately and on the other podcast platforms too. That really helps increase our audience and helps new listeners find the show. If you haven't rated us yet, please take about 30 seconds to surf over to iTunes and to leave us a five-star review and comment. Thanks. This week, Carrie Moyer. She's included in Inherent Structures at the Wexner Center for the Arts. The exhibition features 16 artists who complicate abstract painting's traditional association with chance and aesthetic purity with work that addresses concerns that range from an exploration of materials and paints to the artist's socio-political interests. The show features painters such as Richard Aldrich, Kevin Beasley, and Sam Gilliam, past Man Podcast guests such as Rebecca Morris, Stanley Whitney, and Amy Silman, and a future Man Podcast guest, that'll be Thomas Scheibitz. The show is curated by Michael Goodson and is on view in Columbus through August 12th. For several decades, Moyer's paintings have mined the history of abstract painting, particularly for compositions and for the way artists have used different materials and techniques. Moyer's work and titles often point to contemporary life and politics. She frequently writes criticism for outlets such as Art in America, and in 1991 she co-founded the lesbian public art project Dyke Action Machine. The Tang Museum at Skidmore organized a survey of Moyer's work in 2013. She's also had solo shows at the Worcester Art Museum in Massachusetts and at the Katzen Art Center at American University in Washington, D.C. On the second segment, Aram Hansefuentes talks about her residency at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis. But first, Carrie Moyer, after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents... Peacock in the Desert, the Royal Arts of Jodhpur, India, an exhibition showcasing four centuries of royal treasures on view in the United States for the very first time. Masterpieces that illustrate the history and artistic legacy of the Rathor dynasty are featured, including jewels, paintings, furnishings, textiles, a Rolls-Royce, a vintage aircraft, and much more. On view through August 19th. Visit mfah.org India for more. Now through August 12th, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Inherent Structure, a fascinating glimpse into the underlying sources and influence on abstract painting today, featuring 16 artists, including Richard Aldrich, Kevin Beasley, Sam Gilliam, Arturo Herrera, Angel Otero, Laura Owens, and Ruth Root. Brought together by Michael Goodson, Senior Curator of Exhibitions at the Wex, the multi-generational group challenges historical associations with chance, gesture, and aesthetic purity, revealing the personal, material, and sociopolitical concerns at play in their practices through more than 60 captivating artworks. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Carrie Moyer, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I'm very excited to be here. Let's start by talking about a painting of yours that's uh, in the Wexner show, because I think a lot of the things I find interesting about your work are within it. The painting is called String Theory and Daisy Chains, and it's from 2016. And it's a painting that continues your investigation of American painting from the post-Abex period, a painting that somehow, in, in a way you do that I really love, that brings together so much of late 50s and 60s and 70s painting while still being fresh and new. So first up, from, from kind of the earliest point I can think of to jump off from, do you remember when and why painting from those kind of post-Abex years came to interest you? You know, I went to art school in the 80s, like as an undergrad. And of course, that kind of painting was totally reviled. That's why I ask, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, it's not that, people were saying don't paint it was more why is modernism at all interesting i think because we were moving into the post postmodernism and later on identity art and i think for part of it is i think that kind of art was sort of aspirational for me when i was a child that's kind of like that's what art looks like i come from a working class family my mother really wanted me to be an artist. She often took me and my sister to look at art. And so I was kind of an autodidact with limited access to real paintings and looked at lots of things in books and 
I mean, I think that's part of it. Part of it is I had a discovery of acrylic paint at a certain point in my career when I returned to painting after about a six-year hiatus and then started thinking about that as a material, which also goes to 60s and 70s painting. So there are a number of reasons, I would say. So among the, broadly speaking, references within paintings such as string theory and daisy chains, and really lots of your work from the last 20 years, are color field painting and hard edge painting, and kind of proto-minimal painting of the Ellsworth Kelly, John McLaughlin type, stain painting, things that you know shouldn't exist together and that you've made exist in, in, in one place. I mean, there's no one on, on earth who really necessarily thinks color field stain painting should exist on the same surface as as Ellsworth Kelly but but you when did you think of that and why did you think of the, that as something to make play together I mean this could go to the really the sort of intellectual culture that I came up in you know it's like that all of these things were sort of were used as a kind of sign system especially in the earlier work I think in the last six or seven years, the work has gotten a lot more integrated. So it doesn't read as a series of signs anymore. But there's something very oppressive about the idea of a homogeneous surface or a kind of integrated picture that would, you know, be typically produced, say, in the 50s. And I've never completely understood that. So... I don't know if it's partially willfulness and the sense of, and maybe it comes from graphic design where it's a matter of putting different things together or a sense of collage, but it was also kind of acknowledging that each of those moments in art history had so much more, there were so many other ways to read them instead of, especially with color field painting, a kind of end game around modernism. We're going to reduce the canvas to this. It's going to keep, it's going to keep referring back to the canvas. It's like, yeah, that is a cul-de-sac that we can't get out of. But what else can we do with this incredible materiality that gets set up that's so atmospheric and suggests a kind of space that does not go with the dialogue around late modernism? Yeah, I mean, one of the parts of that dialogue that was somewhere between dominant and purist was the the pursuit of ultimate, complete, and total flatness. We're going to get into kind of how your paintings both are and aren't flat as we go along here, but did that part of, of kind of Greenbergian discourse, the ideal of flatness, interest you, or did you did it interest you only in the sense that you looked forward to rejecting it? <laughs> Part of the thing that got me through my early years making work was that I worked as a graphic designer on the early computer graphic systems. You know, they were standalone systems before Mac. And one of the devices that we don't even think about anymore is how the Mac or graphic interfaces use things like drop shadows to make this kind of fake space. And I think part of it was I'm interested in this kind of shallow sense of space that initially I was calling poster space because I was thinking of these things as a kind of extension of agitprop. So it's this really shallow space that refers directly to the picture plane. In other words, you could have kind of cheesy 60s illusionistic abstraction in a painting with lots of other things. And I don't even know that I thought it was that strange. I was just like, it made some kind of sense to me. It didn't seem like I was being particularly rebellious. I was like, oh, I'm just going to try this, see what happens. I mean, it was certainly around the idea and the interest in flatness was attached to thinking about logos or certain kinds of pop art that I was interested in. But it was also sort of making a context for them. I guess that would be a way to put it. That's outside of a kind of commercial space. I had a bunch of questions about how you think your graphic design interest makes it into the paintings. Just to fill in a bit of backstory before I get to a couple of them. 
Um, we've already mentioned that you trained as a painter at Pratt and made your living for a time as a graphic designer. But after leaving Pratt, you detoured into activism. And along with Sue Schaffner and your senses of humor, you founded the activist group Dyke Action Machine. Your posters are often very funny. They, they insisted on lesbian visibility and on a place for lesbians in public space. We'll have a link to Dam's website and you will laugh uh, on, on manpodcast.com. <laughs> so there are in a number of the posters you made in that period, these, these kind of broad expanses of flat color. And there are in lots of your paintings, going back 20 years, broad expanses of flat color. One way of thinking of those spaces is that they come out of maybe like Ellsworth Kelly. Some of the forms are even kind of rounded in ways that recall Kelly's paintings of the mid-1950s. Or that they come from graphic design. And I wonder if you think they come from one or the other. I think I think of them more as maybe like super graphics you know, that you might see in like an airport or something. I mean, we don't use that term anymore, but it was a term that they used in the late 60s and 70s for these big things that got painted on big industrial walls, right? I don't know that I necessarily was thinking of Ellsworth Kelly, actually. I mean, I'm more interested in people like Ad Reinhardt or Stella or... I mean, with Reinhardt, especially like for me anyway, the sense of periphery. But then I'm also really interested in people like Paul Feely. So the relationship of something very flat and almost like a rubber stamp on a raw field. So I'm really, a lot of this is kind of driven by an interest in the surface texture and what happens to us as we move close and far away from a canvas. That drives many of the kinds of painting moves and surfaces that happen in the pictures. Probably a good time to note that your paintings tend to be very large, five, six feet by six, seven feet. And that, I mean, hearing you talk about what, you know, hearing you say what you just said, it reminds me that, that some of that must come from kind of that airport scale graphic design. I don't know if mentality is the right word, but, you know, approach, scale. Well, also, I, I really overwork little paintings. I have not mastered that size. It's like for me, the, the big size feels really comfortable. And because I'm working on them between a flat surface like they often sit on a table and then they'll be moved to the wall so they go back and forth so I'm looking at them from very far away or really minutely like you know studying this my nose at the level of the painting looking at it and so there's a that to me and I hope this is communicated to the viewer is like such an important part of the pleasure of making a painting. I mentioned that the Dyke Action Machine work is full of humor. Those posters are full of sly lines such as, at last, Dyke Action Machine has figured out how to convert lesbianism into a viable commodity that can be bought, sold, and traded, and, and so on and so forth. Do you think about or try to get that sense of humor into your paintings? I mean, I think a lot of the jokes are sort of dumb, like painter jokes. A lot of the forms are, you know, they vacillate between being body parts or often body parts that are doing, they're twisted or they're bent or almost cartoonish. And then there are some things that just look like the painting you referred to in the beginning, the string theory. You know, there are things in it that are like daisy that might come from you know, it might have been a decal or something from like Latin or... It also reads as a palette in the upper right-hand corner, and there's a little gray shape coming through the oval cutout in this daisy slash palette-like form that kind of doubles over it and creates depth out of these very flat colors. It's, it's, it's like my favorite spot in the whole painting. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love it. And the two the two forms in the lower left of that painting, the, 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 the lower left quadrant, if you will, you know, almost read as, as they both read as Ellsworth Kelly-like forms, but they also read as, as breasts kind of 
presented side view one of them and frontal view the other one on top of each other yeah i mean i think that having lived through the period of painting that i lived through it's like how do we you know you could be asking questions right now about is there such a thing as queer abstraction or feminist abstraction and to me one of the ways I want to sort of insert myself into this conversation and perhaps even make jokes about it because I don't know honestly what I think about it. You know, some days I'm like, this is totally, the definitions are based on our experience and what we pour into the painting. And so when I'm using these references to female bodies, it's both a, it's not a dig, but it's a, kind of sly nod to our obsession with reading 50s paintings in this super phallic way, but also a kind of self-consciousness about that. Like, do we only read these things through a social lens? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I do, because I have a painting queued up. That painting is called Affiche Number 13, Lewis Unfurled. It's from 2002. It is a, a vertical rectangle rather than a horizontal rectangle, as Lewis so often painted, Morris Lewis, of course. And it has those kind of ribbon-like forms coming in from the edges all the way down to the bottom of the painting. And in your painting, you have, you, you have those Lewis-like ribbons coming in, but between them, there is a little blobular shape up there that reads as two possible things. One of them is that it reads as a cloud, and of course, the idea that there's an illusionistic or or cloud in a Lewis painting is, you know, cracks me up. Also, the idea that anything from the natural world makes its way into a Lewis painting cracks me up. And the other way to read it is that is that you're queering Lewis by making the size of the canvas and shape of the canvas you use vertical, and that all of a sudden the horizontal ribboning of Lewis becomes vertical ribboning, uh, kind of looks like a a, a, a V where a woman's legs might come together and that cloud all of a sudden is pubic hair. Is that an example of both being funny, because it's a very funny painting, and, and queering the thing? Yes. I mean, that is... I can't remember what the date on that painting is. 2002. So that is... Well, part of my own sort of story, if you will, is I was a avowed oil painter when I was a student at Pratt and then I had a moment of like crisis like what is painting for a couple years after I graduated and spent about five or six years doing agitprop for DAM and for some other groups but when I came back to painting I decided I was going to switch to acrylic paint and I started thinking about how oil paint and its relationship to the gesture and you know that so that was in the middle of the 90s and we were talking a lot about 50s paint painting being very masculinist and whatnot but when in fact things like color field painting with Morris Lewis and then his relationship to Helen Frankenthaler were also these kind of signal events that we always recognize. You know, it's just not, it's not just Franz Klein, you know, these big black marks being these kind of sign of masculine, like quote unquote genius in terms of painting. You know, there are also the rivulets of Morris Lewis. We know those instantly. So it's kind of back to this idea about what are the kinds of signs for painting and how are they read? And it was meant to be very funny. It's also funny because I basically projected his forms onto the painting and painted them in. The person who stretches had stretched my canvases for a long, long time. David Headley was involved with Lewis's catalog resume. So he told me a lot about how those paintings were made, you know, how the canvas was pinched and then the acrylic paint or the magna would, you know, flow down these pinched alleys as it were. But then in my version, those forms get 
just completely flattened out. They look like a silk screen, actually. You know, that reminds me, I've been meaning to ask how, in, in many of your paintings, whether it's this one from 2002 or the more recent paintings, there are things on the canvas that look like they were poured, a la, you know, Lewis and Frankenthaler. Are you pouring them or are you making it look like they were poured? I'm pouring them and then they are being massaged, let us say. <laughs> With what? <laughs> oh, all sorts of things. More pores go going in with the brush. And maybe part of all of this, I don't know if it's humor or what, is a sort of a disavowal is not the right word, but this idea that things, that the artist is this kind of spontaneous person and whatever happens on the canvas is this sort of like sign of some interiority, you know? So when we look at a lot of color field paintings, it's like a lot of that stuff was much more micromanaged than we would assume. It's not like some sort of Sumi ink Buddhist calligrapher who's 90 years old. You know, it's like Hollywood. Things look natural, but they're so not natural. So those are the kinds of things I'm really, really interested in in the paintings. Yeah, well, speaking of illusion, I wanted to return to flatness a bit because, I, I mean, I think the dominant tension in your work now and for a long time has been this tension, you know, the classic modernist 20th century tension between flatness and pictorial space. And I think that you do it in ways that that are absolutely additive and, and, and really exciting and often kind of funny. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about how you got there and you and I have talked offline and you've talked in other interviews about how kind of Terry Winters gave you permission or showed you the way to how to do that or maybe to, well, how and, how and why was Winters important to you in that flatness v. pictorial space? I mean, I think with him, I was, I think I have a couple of strains in my work that I have had, like he was somebody I was really interested in when I was an undergrad. So that would have been the early 80s. And that love has sort of continued. The thing for me that I was fascinated with, with his work is a kind of gnarly surface for one thing. And then, you know, I grew up in Oregon and the Northwest and California. And the minute I got to New York, I started thinking about sort of representations of the natural world. So that was one of the reasons I'm interested in him. I'm also interested in this micro macro thing that he does where we don't actually know where we're at. Even the, you know, I remember, I don't know exactly when it was. It might've been in the nineties. He had a show of prints that were x-rays that he printed into. And so there's this funny notion of, the body or the natural world world being a kind of cosmos where in the boundaries around things doesn't, they're very porous. So that's something I'm interested in for, with his work, but they're also strangely atmospheric, especially the earlier ones, because they're very grayscale. Another painting where you play with, maybe toy with, pictorial space and flatness that I wanted to talk about is called Swiss Bramble. It's also a 2016 painting and and and, and like a good winter's system painting, I, I, I get lost in this one too. So first, because I can't resist asking and I'm pretty impressed that I've not asked you about a title yet. What is what is a Swiss Bramble? Why the title? What Your, your titles are often very, very funny. Um, I think my favorite is Fan Dance at the, at the Golden Nugget. But why, why Swiss Bramble? <laughs> Swiss Bramble was, I mean, this is my, doing my titles is this thing that I do with my partner, who's also an artist. Her name is Sheila Pepe. And it's become this super fun part of my practice in which I might finish, you know, eight or nine paintings and we go sit in my studio and we just sort of 
brainstorm and say silly things. And she is very brilliant wordsmith. So we're just sitting there, you know, we might be drinking lots of coffee and have the computer in front of us and free associate. And with that one, it was obviously a Swiss cheese because it's this big form that looks maybe like a piece of toast or something around the outside that has holes in it. Blue (laughs) toast. Blue toast, yes. Excuse me, blue toast. But it also looks like one of those weird sort of child toys where the kid is learning how to hammer something into holes, you know, like these big plastic things. Yeah, it's got a little whack-a-mole type of... uh... Exactly. And then, I don't know, I was like, this is... There's some kind of crazy vegetation or something going on back there. So I just thought of that word and it sounded funny together. Honestly, that's how many of them go. It's like, I kind of don't want to be too directive. I want people to find their own things in the work. And the the titles are often maybe a little literary or I don't know. They're suggestive in a way. They're definitely memorable, which which never hurts. I mean, you know, Swiss Swiss Bramble is a lot more memorable than Untitled um, or Untitled 23 or whatever, right? One, one of the things this painting does is it plays with depth front to back. It, play, it plays with, with depth and flatness kind of side to side. This blue thing... This blue form seems to be sitting on top of liquid forms because there are shadows, there are diagonals, there are... I mean, it almost feels like everything you can think of to play with flatness versus pictorial space is what you threw at this, at this particular painting. Do you think in those terms when you compose a thing, or, or is that just what happens? Yeah, I'm definitely thinking about that. I'm thinking about them as being, can I stick my finger or stick my hand into the painting? Like, does it give me that sensation? And then what happens as I move, if I'm 10 inches from it or 10 feet from it? I'm totally thinking about that. I think with those, I have a few paintings from 2016 and 15 in which I use this kind of it's it's hard to describe and in some of them it's almost like a skeletal form that sits in front of a big pore or you know a lot other incidents that happen on the canvas and I was thinking about this idea of looking into and you know, maybe some of the traditional ideas of how one might have thought of a painting 200 years ago as a window, as a space to look through, but actually because that is such a kind of rejected trope of the 20th century to also play with that and pun on it. So you actually can look into things, but you don't get to look very far. And then this whole mess the seething green stuff with this blue holy piece of toast sitting on top of it is in this very shallow frontal space. Another place you do that in is in Solid Solid de Dos Hermanas from 2015, where you kind of create two windows and then, you know, Rene Magritte style or or Factum style, Rauschenberg Factum style, you you give us a view into a very two similar shapes that are, are different, but that, but, but that are intended to recall each other. And in a number of paintings from, from the, the, the 2010s, you do this thing where you play the pores, you know, which have been in your work for 20 years, against very hard-edged shapes. It's, it's a very distinct kind of Moyer move. Why do you like playing the hard edges against the pores? Is that, is that, pictorial or is is that part of querying abstraction oh i think it's both i guess i well one thing to say to that comment is 
that and this is going to sound so cheesy, but it's like this material, this paint, this acrylic paint is so interesting. I feel like I'm constantly finding out new things about it. So the pour has been in the work for a really long time, but it's like every time I do it, I'm, you know, maybe in each body of work, I'm sort of investigating a different way to use it. So in relation to the hard edge forms, I don't know, maybe it's just, maybe it's become a cliche. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's something I'm interested in that tension is, is why I do it. It's like the hard and the soft. Yeah. I mean, that's what, I mean, are you using the same paint to make the hard edges as you are to make the pores? Yeah. Yeah. So basically I'm using, it's it got to do with how much water is in each bucket, essentially. So you're showing off that you can be an alchemist. Exactly. All without appearing to use brushes. Because I, if they're, if, you know, it's pretty hard to find brush marks in your, in your work. Yeah, I think that's something that was a very steadfast rule, not not conscious rule, but it was a way the work evolved. And, you know, that could be changing in the near future. You know, I think it's that, that, that I grew up with teachers who were like, you know, you have to develop your, your mark, you know, what's your mark going to be? It's like paint can only do so many things, you know, it's a, which sort of disavows what I just said about acrylic paint. But what I mean by saying that is that this idea that one would have a signature mark is a ridiculous bar to put on painting. It's like there were like amazing painters whose paintings look very similar, actually. You know, when we go into the like second and third and fourth generation abstract expressionists. So it's, it's, it's got to be more complicated than that in terms of invention and creating your own your own mode through referencing lots of other people. In recent years, you have been basking in blues. Some, some of the blues, like the one we were talking about in Swiss Bramble, kind of recur in a number of paintings. Often there are, are lighter blues that, that come into the pores. And kind of before this, and I hate, I'm going to regret using this phrase as soon as I use it, but, but before this certain blue period of yours, that, you know, you went through a black period where it was blacks that held a painting together. First, why, why that color blue? Why that dominant blue? What about that blue is interesting? And second, why is it you find useful to kind of build a thing around a color for a number of years? Wow, I've never thought of my work that way, <laughs> honestly. I mean, I know about the black for sure. I'm not, I'm, I'm not being facetious. I'm being genuine. And the blue is very recurrent. Okay, now for my second most cheesy comment of the interview. I had an experience where I went with my sister on a sisterly road trip, and we went to New Mexico. And we went to all these ruins and looked at the petroglyphs. And we also went to Ghost Ranch, which is was George O'Keefe's ranch. And this is where the like sort of American, maybe a relationship to American abstraction or abstraction that comes out of the American landscape kicks in a little bit. There's just this weird, this very delicious color of light and sky that I'm just really interested in. Are you consciously building individual paintings around a single color? No, I'm making color decisions. I mean, when I'm making a painting, especially in the flat areas, sometimes those flat areas will have been painted, you know, maybe 20 times. Because I'm very, very minutely adjusting the value and the hue and seeing what they do, what it does to the surrounding color. So 
so in some paintings you can see the pentimenti build up and that's usually from that so I, I i don't know if i can describe what i'm ultimately looking for and give it a name but it's like i'm looking for certain vibratory things to happen between the flat color and the modulated color which is poured oh i think that happens i you know i think that happens even in reproduction i mean i think it's pretty hard to miss um, and actually, you've kind of been doing that since, you know, almost the beginning. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of recent paintings because recency bias. But, you know, take a painting like 2000's Brain Box, which features a kind of poured red seated figure along with some Sam Francis-like forms with a kind of almost blue male stamped-like figure mostly but not entirely superimposed over it. So I, I guess that's both to point out that you've been interested in what you were just talking about for a long time, but also to note how just enormously different the content of that early painting is. So who who or what is the seated form and who or what is the stamp-like figure? So I went to Bard for my graduate studies in 1998 and I had been painting on my own for quite a while and doing a lot of activism and agitprop and then I decided I wanted to go to grad school and one of the things that happened to me in grad school was that I realized that I could instead of treating painting as this sort of private solely internal activity that I was doing alone in the studio, which I wanted to return to because I'd been doing a lot of collaborative work for around five years. I could also bring in some of the ideas that I had used in Agiprop. So those early paintings in the 2000s, they're really a kind of investigation of me looking at, again, sort of sign systems around countercultural imagery like May 68, Marx, Lenin, and Chairman Mao is in a couple of the paintings of Buckminster Fuller. So I th what I was doing was moving away from graphic design that was dealing specifically with lesbian visibility and sort of moving into my own history because I grew up with hippie parents. And sort of looking at that from the outside, but showing it using maybe 60s painting tropes, right? A mixture of hard-edged abstraction and colored field painting. So there's a great, let me, let me jump in really quickly with a great example of that. Um, it's a painting called Chroma Festo, Sister Resistor 1.2 from 2003. It's a mashup of breasts, a, a the closed fist power symbol, the woman symbol with the circle and the plus sign, with all of that kind of 60s style painting and graphic design references that you were talking about. We'll have an image of that on manpodcast.com. So the blue shape is the zigzag man from the rolling papers. Ah. You can, you can kind of make out a mustache, but not so directly that it's obvious. And then the shape in the background was, I was really heavily involved at that point in looking at the sort of history of activist design from like Chinese communist posters from the Cultural Revolution to Russian constructivism to May 68 to the feminist, you know, Chicago Women's Graphic Collective. I don't think collective is the right word, but... So really doing a sort of broad investigation of silkscreened left, leftist graphics. So that image is a picture of a woman hammering from a Chinese poster. So really a lot of the work before, say, 2004 was often sourced from things in the world. Well, speaking of the zigzag papers, you know, there's a painting from that year that also features a marijuana leaf, free Patty Yanter. So you were probably pretty relaxed in those years. <laughs> no, I'm not a 
I'm not a pot smoker. I'm just interested in this iconography and the the you know the sort of I don't know how do I say it because it's so much a part of our culture now. The kind of diluted meaning that gets attached to these things as they travel through time. Actually, when I was make making those paintings, it was around the time I lived in the East Village in New York then. And you would walk down 8th Street, and it used to be the street where everyone bought their bong and everything else. And, you know, now it's pretty vacant, actually. But, And that was just me thinking about, you know, why would a 12-year-old want to wear a Che Guevara t-shirt? Like, what does that mean? Because it actually did mean something once. So that was part of that investigation. And then... And as I moved through it, I, I had started out as an abstract painter, and I just really wanted to get away from having a kind of textual component to the work. I wanted it to be more inventive and from my imagination, instead of requiring the viewer to sort of stack up these recognizable or not images in a in a kind of you know, late Picabia polka sort of way. Ah, well, I'm glad you mentioned painters we haven't brought up yet because I was worried I was giving the impression that you were only living in, in Morris Lewis and Ellsworth Kelly because it gives me the opportunity to bring up a couple of other paintings and to ask you about a couple of other specific artists. Let's start with Sap Green, a 2007 painting. That reminds me in ways I can barely describe of Barbara Hepworth and Max Ernst. Uh, Hepworth, the, the Hepworth is easy to find in the painting. It's, it's, it's the holes. The Ernst, I can't quite explain, except for maybe that color green is in a lot of Ernst. Why, why Hepworth? Why Ernst? Well, one of the things I would say in response to that is, I don't remember when the Max Ernst show was at the Met, but it had an enormous impact on me. And he was somebody I had been interested in for a long time. But when I saw his work and the level of invention that he had in, in just literally making the paintings, I mean, I think the late work, the sort of content, if you will, is not so interesting, but the way that they're made and the great variety of things that he came up with to do with paint and different kinds of surfaces. And so he's been a really important person in terms of how I think about painting itself and that a painting can actually hold a lot of different kinds of painting in the same painting. And that you can use paint as a sculptural material on, on panel or on canvas or whatever you're painting on. Yes. And in terms of the forms, I sort of part of the transition from, you know, looking at agitprop and the sort of history of graphics to wanting to return to a kind of abstraction, which I didn't really know what it would be yet. I was kind of feeling my way towards it. And I was spending a lot of time at the Rockefeller wing at the Met and looking at art from you know, Aboriginal art, art, you know, totems. I was interested in making a kind of abstraction that would be, have some kind of figurative references. So I was looking at a lot of instruments. I think part of it was thinking about like the Venus of Willendorf and forms like that. Thinking about what would happen you know, when the feminist art movement came around, around and it, you know, today we're talking about people like Joan Semmel and Judith Bernstein, but at the time there was not, the painting was probably the least interesting part of what was going on. It's like the videos and the performance and all this stuff was had just blossomed. So it's kind of like what would feminist painting look like in this kind of but when I look like look at a painting like 2006's Fur Below and, and hear what you're saying about that Venus and, 
and that part of the Met and Ernst and Hepworth, I can find all of that. And, and, and also agitprop and a painting like Furbelow. Yeah. So those little black paintings were made, I, I made about 20 of those. And I thought of them as being very influenced by ceramics and sort of things that lived in vitrines, basically. I did a lot of drawings and, you know, looked and yeah, thought a lot about small sculpture or things that are functional, maybe. That's that's a really interesting thing about, about the paintings that you did in the mid-aughts, like Sap Green, the Hepworth kind of related painting is that there is a lot of sculpture in these. I mean, I don't think in your new paintings there's as much sculpture, except for maybe in that Swiss bramble we talked about. There's there's a little Hepworth there too, of course. But there's a heck of a lot of sculpture in these mid-aughts paintings, like every single one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking about them being perhaps a kind of form that lived. And I was also really interested in symmetry and like how symmetry does not allow for a certain kind of narration like we think of a cruciform or you know any kind of like a mandala or something and we are basically locked in the frame with that form we're not meant to escape we're meant to sit there with it and so I was thinking a lot about how that how symmetry operated and so back to this idea of a form sitting in a rectangle that you know you're kind of just supposed to look at so a great example of that the last painting i'll mention is from 2011 it's called battle of the scholar rocks and it's lots of ernst lots of sculpture lots of object there's a winking reference to symmetry everything you just described including treating paint like a sculptural material even using ernst's colors is all right there yeah that one i was like Oh God. I, I mean, a lot of times what happens when I'm in the studio is, and this, you know, I don't know if I should qualify it or not, but you know, it's like things happen. Things happen when the painting is on the table and it reminds me of something. And so instead of suppressing it, I go with it. Right. So in that painting, there was part of it that looked kind of like Malachite. It's like, oh, this is interesting. How do I, you know, so it's again playing with this idea of taste in painting, which goes to the integrated surface, you know, in the kind of Greenbergian sense. It's like, well, you wouldn't use something that looked like faux, faux painting in a, in a, like a highbrow painting, like a serious painting. So I was, you know, I'm again, I'm still thinking about stuff like that. And that also goes to some of the reasons that I started using glitter, too. Was it, I think it was a kind of self consciousness that I had about what kinds of painting I was interested in. So if I'm interested in mid century painting and we're living in this moment when painting is dead, how do I? queer that you know how do I bring it bring it to the presence and then later on it became this sort of interesting kind of light source that happened in the work yeah that's that's all there in that painting it's very great it has some Ernst it has some Picasso it has some it has a lot of things it's really it's really pretty super Carrie Moyer thanks so much for speaking with me thank you Tyler this has been so fun thank you Celebrate wine and inspiring conversation at the Getty Villa on June 2nd and 16th. Learn more about the exhibition Plato in L.A., Contemporary Artists' Visions. Hear UCLA classicist Catherine Morgan discuss Plato's relevance today. And enjoy wine and appetizers with fun-loving philosophers in an enchanting outdoor setting. Find out more about this perfect summer event and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. Focus, Camrose Aram is on view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition features all new work. Spanning painting, sculpture, collage, and installation, Camrose Aram's work investigates the complex relationship between Western modernism and classical non-Western art. By highlighting their formal connections, 
who reveals the typically downplayed role that non-Western art and design have played in the development of modernism and its drive toward abstraction. Challenging the traditionally Eurocentric narrative established by art history, Aram's work sets forth to disrupt this perceived hierarchy by merging and equalizing Western and non-Western forms through June 17th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Welcome back. My next guest, Aram Hansifuentes, is in residence at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis this summer. The project she's developing or expanding there is her protest banner lending library, an ongoing multi-city project in which Sifuentes works with a community to create banners and loans community members banners from her ever-growing library. The banners typically address contemporary socio-political issues and we'll discuss quite a few examples in a moment. Her work has been exhibited at numerous museums, including at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York and the MCA Chicago. Aram Sifuentes, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we get into the specifics of the Pulitzer Project you're doing in St. Louis, how and why did you become interested in banners and making banners and in the facilitation of other helping other people make banners? Yeah, so I am a fiber artist uh, and I do most of my projects with using hand sewing and fabric. And that's because my, my mom is a seamstress. And so I learned how to sew at six years old and it's never left me. And so when the elections happened, I was working on this project called the Official Unofficial Voting Stations, Voting for All Who Legally Can't, where I collaborated with over 15 different artists, activists, and organizations all over U.S. and Mexico to create different sorts of voting stations that were open to all. And in one of the stations at the Jane Addams Hull House in Chicago, the installation that I created were pretty much protest banners. And so I was thinking a lot about protest banners already. And then when the elections happened, I just kept making protest banners. So how did you expand the project to both facilitating other people making banners and then to the lending library concept? I was making these banners right after elections. I was literally, my first one that I made was on November 9th. And I had this really silly pug fabric laying around. What's, what's pug fabric? A fabric with pugs on it. Oh, literally, like a dog. <laughs> literally, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, why did I buy this? What am I ever going to use this for, right? And then the elections happened, and then I was like, and then with all the protests erupting and people having, you know, posters that said dump Trump on it, and I was like, oh, that, that's perfect. <laughs> so then uh, that first banner I made said dump Trump on that pug fabric. And so I was making these banners and then feeling like, you know, I, I needed a sense of community. And so I kind of put it out on my Facebook to my networks, like, hey, I'm going to make banners on Thursday. If you want to come and make them with me, like you're free to come. And then people were coming over to my house to make them. And kind of the second time I asked people if they want to come over, there were like more than more than 20 people that were like, I'm going to show up with my sewing machine. And my place was really small. So I was like, no, you're I have to cancel this. I can't accommodate that many people. And luckily, a few other friends of mine who like, you know, run art spaces were like, oh, let's just bring it over here. And so that's how the workshops happened. And it just grew really fast. And I think, you know, it was in that moment once Trump got elected and it was people kind of trying to think like, what what can we do to respond to this moment? And so how it turned into a lending library is that so I was making these banners and I really wanted them to be used. And then I just came to a point where I was like, wait, why am I making these banners? Because like, I don't, I'm a, I wasn't a not a citizen at the time. So me not being a citizen at the time and me having a really small child, like a one-year-old, I was like, well, I don't actually, I'm not actually going to take these out because I don't feel safe taking these out. And most of my projects, I work with immigrant non-citizen communities as well. So then they were making banners with me and the same question kept coming up, right? Like, wait, can someone else take these? Because like, I can't actually go to the protests. So then I was thinking about that, like, how do these get used? And then the idea came to me that if I make it a library, then other people can come and check them out to use. And so how that's how that idea came about. 
one of the things that's interesting about that is you make the social practice element of the project sound more accidental than conceptual. Yeah, because a lot of it is, I would say. And I think definitely when you're working with people and when you're working on these kind of socially engaged projects, I think oftentimes it is accidental or you kind of have some idea of how it will go, but then you have to be flexible to hear what the public actually wants and what they need and then being able to respond to that. So before we get to what the banners say and the fabric, the banners, other banners are made out of and and kind of that kind of specific detail. And of course, we'll have images of many of these banners and the places you've made them and facilitated their making on manpodcast.com. Were there art historical precedents that informed you as you were kind of either developing the idea or once you got into it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one thing about being a fiber artist and making this sort of work, the references that are often associated with my work are, you know, for example, making these banners, it's like, oh, the suffragettes, right? (laughs) And me feeling really frustrated by that and me wanting to fight against that, right? And some of my other work, the U.S. Citizenship Test Sampler, it's it's creating these sewing circles of non-citizens sewing the U.S. Citizenship Test questions together. And that reference, too, you know, they're always, like, talking about these sewing circles of white women coming together and, like, it being a place of subversion. Of course, I'm responding to that to some extent, but really I'm I'm confronting that and really inserting new narratives within that for of people of color, right? That I guess what I'm trying to say is that what I respond to is that a lot of the historical references that get tied to my work are really whitewashed. And so really questioning that and saying, wait, why are why is these sewing circles of immigrant women coming together and men coming together sewing these test questions? Like why do why does it quickly get associated with like sewing circles of like Victorian white women when like this is the work that immigrants currently do. And historically. I mean, one of the interesting things about the project to me is how many connections it makes with America's non-art historical past, you know, just simply America's historical past, such as to labor and gender and immigrant workforces and even more specifically, say, the history of women working in New England textile mills or children working in New England textile mills. Was any of that important to you? Is any of that important to you? Yeah, definitely. The labor histories are really what what is really important to me and what I respond to, especially because my my mom and my dad, you know, they own a dry cleaners. My mom is the seamstress like they're currently doing that work right now, you know, so like inserting people of color and immigrant histories within these histories is really important for me. So let's talk about some of the banners themselves. What was the first one you made? I think you said it was on this fabric that had dogs on it. Pugs on it, yeah. So how did you develop the language you wanted the banners to include after that? Initially, it was kind of like looking at what was already out there and, you know, in protest thinking like, okay, I want these to be used because... For me, the priority in the project is use of the banners. So thinking about what banners will people take out, right? So like the dump Trump. And then in the workshops, it it becomes where people can, can come up with their own slogans, right? And some of those are ones that are used in protests and kind of popular in that kind of way, or like not my president or, or vote for women, right? And then it it's become like more... So, now within the project, me and my collaborators, so now we're a team of four with Veronica Casado-Hernandez, Ishita Darap, and Tabitha Kunkis. And so we constantly make kind of, we just play around with words and slogans all the time. And then we're constantly coming up with kind of new slogans and banners. So surely you have favorites that either you've made or that collaborators have made or that just simple participants have made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, one of them, my ultimate favorite is it says, I'm an immigrant. I came here to take your job, but you don't have one. So that's my favorite of all times. (laughs) And then I know Tabitha really likes the lifting as we climb. 
we made that banner um, after going to the National Museum of what is what is that new museum in at the Smithsonian? The National Museum of African American History and Culture. Yes, that one. The so one with a very long there, name. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I'm always, I always mix the words around. So I'm glad you, you knew right off the bat. But <laughs> so yeah, there's a banner there that um, says lifting as we climb. So taking inspiration from that. And then there's a banner I really like that just says fuck six times. <laughs> <laughs> in, in rainbow colors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have one with a huge giant yellow smiley face that says fuck the police. And I really like that one as well. So in the context of the Pulitzer Project, how does the lending library work? So at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, as part of my residency there, we're having the Purchase Banner Lending Library there physically at the Pulitzer. So on the second floor on the mezzanine, there is kind of a shelf and a table of banners. And so Sophie and Kristen, who are part of the programming team, they reached out to local artists and activists and organizations before I got there to collect some slogans. And then we initially made about 30 to take there. And then every time I've been back to St. Louis, we've been doing these purchase banner lending library purchase banner making workshops uh, for the public and also for private workshops, like at schools and community centers. And then once people make the banner, they can either take it or they could donate it to the library. And I would say about half of the people have been donating and half taking, right? So then in that way, the collection has grown. I, I'm not sure what number of banners we have, but I would I would estimate that we're probably at 50 or 60 banners. And so they're, they're on the mezzanine and anyone can come and just look through them, pick them up and then take it to the front desk and say, I'm going to check this out. And then you can check it out. There's no late fees. There's no time limits. So we just ask, please return it once you're done using it. So that's how someone can go to the Pulitzer and check it out. So because I'm a history nerd, I'm, I'm also interested in kind of broader contexts for how your project will be seen in the contexts in which it will be considered, you know, many years from now. And one of them is, is the American craft tradition. And here I should mention, you've worked on the history of craft for the archives of American art. And I wonder if any of that work of yours informs this project. I guess what specifically about the American craft traditions, or you mean just broadly? Yeah, broadly from, I mean, you know, there is a tradition in American textiles of, say, quilts that contain political messages going back into the mid to late 19th, early to mid 19th century. I mean, there's a, there's a long tradition of communities that have been marginalized by the dominant culture using textiles and specifically quilts to contain everything from specific political messages to carrying on pre-extant cultural traditions. I think my answer to this is similar to what I said earlier in terms of kind of the canon around craft and in terms particularly textiles, right? And what kind of narratives and histories gets prioritized within that and really creating projects that question those narratives and really question what's not being written about or what's not necessarily written about, but like, you know, I think about Avery Gordon and her book Ghostly Matters and the question that she asks in terms of how do we reckon with what modern history has made ghostly? And so I think a lot about that in terms of, you know, marginalizing communities of color and really like that they aren't centered in a lot of these narratives, particularly around craft and that, you know, we've made them ghostly. And so, yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of my projects are, are like the U S citizenship test samplers. Like it does respond to the narrative of samplers that were made in colonial America, right. By school children to learn the alphabet and numbers. And then, girls from wealthy families that were able to continue their education, they would create another one to display their worth as 
as a wife, right? Like I'm an amazing sewer. I'm, I'm going to be an excellent wife. Right. And inserting narratives and, and histories of women of color and people of color that work in, in the textile industry, right? Like doing handcraft and hand labor in this type type of way, inserting us into that conversation. So what's the future of the project? Do you hope that it goes to other cities? Do you hope that it can even be perpetuated in Seattle if you're in Miami? So what in the last few months, what's happened to the Protest Banner Landing Library is that I've been taking it to other cities. So we had a library at the Asian Arts Initiative in Philadelphia. I was in Boston for about a week doing workshops at the School of the Museum of Fine Art at Tuff University. And then so they have a collection in the actual like Tuft University library that can get checked out through their system. And then in St. Louis at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation. And so it's been really interesting to take it to other cities in terms of, you know, kind of what kind of populations they serve and how they get used. And yeah, the goal is to keep going because we still have a lot to fight for. And yeah, ideally, the it would be great to take it to as many places as possible, especially if, you know, because like I said, with use being a priority, like to taking them to sites where they will be most used. I love it. Aramhan Sifuentes, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.